a lot of us know as a God. He was here several years ago as a visiting scholar for the whole year with his family. It was great to get to know him. And when we heard he was back in the country, we were keen to be sure he came to visit us uh, again. He's written a lot on the origins of military thought. Uh, I think there was a three-volume series on that that I remember reading parts of before he came. He's also written on British armor theory and the rise of the panzer arm. Uh, he's currently working on an interdisciplinary book, uh, provisionally entitled War in Human Civilization. Seems like a rather large topic. <laughs> so uh, he's been a professor at the Alexander von Humboldt a Fellow in Germany. He's been a Fulbright Fellow at Yale. He's been a British Council, on Sco- British Council Scholar in Britain, and so on. And so uh, most important of all, of course, he was a visiting scholar at the Mershon Center. So it's great to welcome back Azergoth. I'm glad to be back. Um, the themes I shall talk about today are taken from a wide-ranging interdisciplinary project with which I've been engaged in the last eight years, including the year that I'd the privilege of spending here at the Mershon, and I'm about to finish next year. This is a big book about war which combines anthropology, evolutionary theory, archaeology, history, historical sociology, political science, and IR theory. I hope I didn't forget anything. Uh, it's going to be an 800 to 1,000 page book. Um, The first part of the book deals with what I call the human state of nature, the two million years that humans lived as hunter-gatherers. The first part is called the first two million years. Uh, This part part aims at resolving age-old questions such as why people fight and since when they've been doing so, questions that appear almost as cliches but have never received definitive scholarly answers. The second part deals with the mutual interactions between, wa- between warfare and two successive landmarks in the growth of human civilization, uh, the advent of agriculture and the emergence of the state, how these transitions affected and were affected by warfare. The third part, which I am now in the process of writing, asks the same question uh, with respect to modernity. Because war is connected to everything, the book is necessarily a study of everything, uh, not only of war, and yet this is not a textbook, nor a survey, nor even a synthesis, but a research book, uh, both empirical and theoretical, on every point it deals with. I'm I'm aware that this is bound to arouse skepticism, particularly as I deal with a variety of disciplines and employ employ a, a global comparative perspective across time and space. I was skeptical myself before taking up uh, this project if it was not a crazy idea. Uh, Now that about 90% of the book is already written, I can say that I at least am satisfied that this is feasible. To make sure that I'm not alone in being so satisfied, my policy throughout has been to publish various themes from the book in journals of of the relevant disciplines and stand the criticism of experts in each field. On the other hand, of course, part of the ability of the project to innovate derives from the broad comparative perspective itself 
and the insights that it generates with respect to more specific questions. I shall now pass on to my subject today. Um, let me take the questions the question since when humans fight, which is intimately related to the question why they fight. Was warfare always, always there, is as old as a species, or was it relatively a, new, a relatively new phenomenon only emerging with humankind's cultural evolution? For instance, with the advent of agriculture that occurred in the most pioneering groups of people some 10,000 years ago, or the emergence of the state again some 5,000 years ago in some parts of the world, much later in other parts. What disciplines deal, deal with uh, this question? His, history does not deal with it at all. It only begins with literacy, that is, 5,000 years ago in the most advanced societies. However, the genus Homo has existed for 2 million years, and our species Homo sapiens over 100,000 years. Compared to this time span, historical times and the cultural explosion experienced in them are just the tip of the iceberg. This, of course, only, highlight, only highlights the question whether fighting is a new cultural invention or it has always been around. In political science and IR, the only field that deals with this question is political theory. Here, the two classical and conflicting answers to the above questions were formulated by Hobbes in the 17th century and Rousseau in the 18th. As you know, for Hobbes, the pre-state condition was characterized by war of all against all, which in, when in the absence of a peace-enforcing authority, life was, high, was highly violent. For Rousseau, things were quite the opposite. The aboriginal condition of humans was fundamentally nonviolent. In the absence of property before agriculture, there was little to fight over. War, according to Rousseau, is a late development, one of the ills of civilization. Who is right? Hope so, Rousseau. For political philosophers, the question barely exists at all. They usually claim that Hobbes and Rousseau postulated the state of nature as hypothetical and, leaves it, and leave it as dead, at death. In truth, however, Hobbes and Rousseau regarded the state of nature as both historical and hypothetical. And in any case, irrespective of these two thinkers, the question is un unmistakably uh, historical and empirical. Living in the age in the age of exploration and the European co contact with a variety of Aboriginal societies, Hobbes and Rousseau were well, were, were well aware of this. And since then, our insight into the distant past of, our, of the human race has, of course, increased dramatically, and with it also the realization how recent in human history the development of agriculture and the state was. Which brings us which bring us to archaeology. What light can it shed on our question? Unfortunately, not much. And the main reason for this is that weapons of fighting before the introduction of metals are practically undistinguishable from hunting implements. Stone axes, spears and arrows. Were they, were they used for hunting only or were they 
dual purpose can use also for fighting. Specialized fighting equipment such as shields is made of perishable material, wood and leather, and does not survive. When missile heads are found embedded in human bones, this can be attributed to hunting accidents. Also, pe people did not live in sedentary dwellings and therefore evidence of fortification and destruction that we find in later period does not exist. The same applies to evidence from cemeteries which also appear only with, only with uh, sedentism. Biology has gone through an interesting development which serves as a sobering lesson regarding the evolution of ideas in general, including scientific ideas. During the 1960s, the founder of ethology, the science of animal behavior, Nobel laureate Conrad Lawrence, popularized a set of ideas regarding violence in nature. Highly controversial at the time, they have in the meanwhile been mostly refuted. Lawrence claimed that intraspecific fighting, that is, fighting between animals of the same species, is mostly ritualistic and mainly involves display. The, lose, the loser usually retreats or submits, while the victor refrains from pressing it, its advantage to the finish. According to Lawrence, the reason for this pattern of behavior was the need to preserve the species. It does, it, it does appear that humans who fight to kill their own kind are a deviation from the normal pattern in nature. This notion of a murderous human perversion set well with the Rousseauite doctrines of the 1960s regarding nature's, nature's purity, the corruption of civilization, and man as tabula rasa, wholly molded by culture. The view that fighting was a late byproduct of human civilization became widely held. Since then, however, evolutionary theory has undergone a sweeping change whose profound implications are increasingly making themselves felt. This is the doctrine popularly known as the selfish gene or neo-Darwinism. It became clear that natural selection mostly takes mostly takes place within rather than between species. As Darwin himself argued, the, the struggle among individuals from the same species is the most intense because they compete for the same sort of food and for the same mates in the very same ecological niches. Still, whatever the changes in the understanding of evolutionary theory in line with Darwin's original ideas, what counts, of course, is the empirical evidence. And here, too, it has been revealed by innumerable studies carried out since the 1970s that within species in nature, predatory and non-predatory, a perpetual violent and lethal competition takes place. This also includes our closest cousins, the, chimp the chimpanzees, believed during the 1960s to be, to be uh, peaceful, playful, all the good things. Um, it is true that adult males, adult males usually avoid a fight to the finish among themselves for reasons of self-preservation. Any serious injury might render an animal incapable of getting food and result in starvation as well as weakening it vis-a-vis -vis third parties. 
Indeed, when deterrence by display and demonstration of force fails, serious fighting, injuries and death often follow. In any case, however, most intraspecific killing in nature is done against the young and the weak, asymmetrical killing, including eggs, chicks and cubs, when the killing is performed with relative safety for the killer. No interspecific benevolence. Still, excuse me, since this, is, this now appears all over nature documentaries on television, I'm, I'm sure that all of you are quite familiar with the evidence uh, lions killing lion cubs uh, who, were, uh, who were not their own and so on. So, as, bio as biology has completed the full circle since the 1960s, it turns out that humans are no longer unique, are no longer an exception in nature in extensively killing their kind, and do not call for some special explanation. Widespread intraspecific killing is actually the norm in nature. Again, the change in the theoretical perspective still leaves the empirical question, what are the actual findings regarding humans in the state of nature? Is there concrete evidence that people fought before agriculture and the state? The discipline that is the richest in relevant information for answering this question is anthropology, which studies extant and recently extinct pre-state and even pre-agricultural societies. Not that access to and the interpretation of that information are easy. The main problem is the so-called the contact paradox. These societies have no written records of their own, and written documentation therefore requires contact with literate societies that necessarily uh, affect them. As in quantum mechanics, the very activity of, of observation changes the object under observation. Literate societies have goods, agricultural products, livestock, and manufactured goods, which hunter-gatherers might want, might want, by stealing, for example. How can it be determined that a warlike behavior on their part did not originate only with contact, but had existed before? How can one observe pure hunter-gatherer societies that are free from contact with agriculturalists and states? This is like the light in a, in a refrigerator. Does it really turn off when the, door, when the door is closed? Because of this built-in ambiguity, anthropologists to this day continue to debate who was right, Hobbes or Rousseau, with the answers changing with the, with the zeitgeist, the 20th century having been predominantly Rousseauite. During the 1980s and early 90s, for example, some anthropologists developed the so-called tribal zone theory. According to the more extreme version of this theory, fighting reached tribal societies only with, the, only with and because of the dislocation brought about by contact with Europeans and other people from state societies. Most advocates of that theory have in fact recognized that warfare existed among tribal societies before contact. But this leaves, leaves little that is meaningful in the theory, and the overwhelming, overwhelming impression that it advocates have created has been of a peaceful past. 
So the challenge is how to observe pure hunter-gatherer societies to determine whether they fought or not. And the most prominent test case here is Australia, a whole continent of simple hunter-gatherers with no agriculturist or pastoralist at all, whose isolation came to an end only 200 years ago. This is the closest to a pure laboratory on a continental scale that we are ever going to get, incorporating about 300 regional groups or tribes. The evidence shows that they fought incessantly among themselves, including the material evidence of shields, which were not, of course, used for hunting kangaroos. Almost as good a laboratory is the American Northwest, from Oregon to Alaska, a huge space of nearly isolated complex hunter-gatherers who are revealed to have fought, again, incessantly. These cases are much superior to the Kalahari Bushmen, which constituted the focus of study in the 1960s, simply because they were still there, and even they, in the end, turned out to have four times the 1990 U.S. homicide rate, which is, of course, the highest in the developed world. Let me briefly summarize the finding of my survey, findings which might be vague in many particular cases, but which consistently repeat themselves in one separate anthropological case study after the other, thereby becoming an unmistakable pattern. About 25% of adult males in hunter-gatherer society found violent death, 25%, with all the rest covered with scars. Contrary to prevailing views, this, of course, is a much higher death rate than that incurred in modern societies with, with, only, the world, with only the world wars coming near. An endemic state of insecurity and fear prevailed in hunter-gatherer societies which shaped all aspects of their lives. Hobbes watched much closer to the truth than Rousseau in describing the pre-agriculture and pre-state pre -state, state of nature. I shall now pass on to the question why people fight. I hope to, you have read the article which I asked to distribute uh, to you in advance because I cannot hope to present all the evidence I deploy there and shall be necessarily brief. Fundamentally, the question about the motivations for fighting is almost tantamount to the question of motivations in general. All sorts of more or less trivial lists of motivations have been compiled through the ages. I argue that only the evolutionary rationale can explain our motivations and show how they connect with one another in an integrated motivational complex here in relation to fighting. Our biological inheritance was shaped during the geological time spans of our, of our evolutionary state of nature, which, is a, which as I have already indicated, spent 99.5% of the history of the genus Homo and more than 90% of the history of our, of our species, Homo sapiens, when humans lived in small group, groups as hunter-gatherers. 
since the advent of agriculture and the ensuing cultural explosion, this biological inheritance has continuously interacted with culture, but as, as in Chomsky, Chomsky's deep grammar, it is always there as the deep infrastructure and around which culture is built. Na na nature versus nurture is a false dichotomy. Both are always there and interacting. In the evolutionary rationale, somatic and reproductive factors are inextricably linked. As Darwin, following Malthus, stressed, in nature there is a perpetual competition over resources whose scarcity is the main break on unlimited demographic growth. This is strikingly demonstrated with respect to humans by, for example, America, where maybe a few hundreds or thousands of people who, who crossed from Asia some 13,000 years ago propagated into tens of millions before Columbus. In the Pacific Islands, founder communities that arrive on, on rafts from Asia, often no more than a few dozens individuals, quickly increase to thousands and tens of, th of thousands on these empty islands. I'm, I'm referring to the larger ones. These, however, are the exceptions. Normally, contrary to Rousseau, there were no empty spaces to move to. Except for Earth's harshest and least inhabited environments, boundaries between human groups were clearly defined, fiercely protected, and crossed only at the, peri the peril of death. Mobility was experienced only within group territories. This again is based on extensive empirical evidence from, from, from the large number of hunter-gatherer societies studied by anthropologists across the globe. The nature of the scarce resources varied. In arid environment, water holes sometimes co constituted a scarce resource. Food, food was always scarce, particularly meat and also nuts and other highly nutritious food whose monopolization was worth the effort. There were also huge differences between rich elite territories, especially along rivers and seashores and poorer, island, po poorer inland territories. People incessantly fought over all this since it was a matter of life and death for them, the stakes were the highest. At the same time, a mighty reproductive struggle for women took place within and between the human groups. Polygamy for the most successful men was the rule, as was fighting caused by human abduction, rape and extramarital relations. Even in the harshest and most sparsely popular environments, such as the Arctic and the Kalahari Desert, where resource competition barely existed, there were, as I've already mentioned, and contrary to popular myth, much higher killing rates caused by competition over women than in present-day uh, present U.S. Somatic and reproductive factors are easier to explain, but how are seemingly non-material factors to be explained evolutionarily? Again, I refer here to motives that are repeatedly cited in anthropological studies of warfare in various hunter-gatherer societies, that is, in, in, in different case studies. Um, status, rank, honor, and leadership 
constituted nature with both social animals and human societies a key for the attainment of somatic and reproductive advantages and therefore are highly thought. For this reason, people fight over them and staunchly defend their honor. Prestige objects that have no subsistent value are also fought for. Are also fought for. They might have decorative value which enhance bodily features that cue for good genes in nature. Some of them are expensive and difficult to attain, being rare, and therefore function as additional evidence of status. This is known as ostentatious consumption which, is exi which has existed from the Native American Northwest potlatch to modern society and is virtually open-ended because people can always advance upmarket. Revenge is another much-cited motive for fighting in simple societies. It is a means of deterrence in societies which lack a coercive central authority that can establish order. As Robert Axelrod suggested, tit for tat is the most effective mechanism in human relation. On the other hand, it often results, results in a vicious circle of, of retribution because of the prisoner's dilemma. The security dilemma, the other's very existence in condition of, of potential com competition constitute a threat which requires vigilance, increase in, in strength, and even preemption, all of which in turn only intensify the dilemma. This often creates arm races, which is the reason arm races, of course, are not, are not unique to, to men. They, for example, are the reason why trees have trunks. Or a red-green effect, the same thing, after Alice through the mirror glass, uh, where the sides run as fast as they can, only to remain in the same place relative to one another. Accusation of sorcery. These are imagined fears which are, however, directed non-randomly at real or potential enemies. Playfulness, adventurism, sheer pugnacity. Playfulness function in nature in both animal and humans as preparation for practical activity such as fighting and hunting. The same with, with all mammals. Um, since, like all adaptive behavior, they are reinforced by positive feelings and the release of uh, dopamine, they may sometimes take life of their own, be misactivated, like any addiction. This, in outline, is the evolutionary rationale that underlies the motivation for fighting regularly cited in anthropological studies of hunter-gatherer societies. It explained the high stakes which prompted humans, like other animals, to engage in this highly dangerous activity. Obviously, the question that must now arise is what becomes of this motivational complex as cultural evolution and diversification accelerate? Yes. Is this going to be a point where we should take a break or not? If you give me one more sentence, we... <laughs> this is one of the main themes of my book, but shall have to be postponed, not until after lunch, but for the next time. Oh, you're done? I'm done.